Okay. Welcome to The Classroom Critics, a podcast about film and all things film by three teachers. Uh, my name is Andrew Martino, and I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, William Ivers. Our other colleague, Walter Freeman, is busy with family since it's the day before Thanksgiving and we're doing this podcast today. But uh, nevertheless, we are back uh, after uh, what has been a too long of a hiatus, but all of us are busy and we try to work these things in when we can. The film that we're doing today is Woody Allen's 2011 production, uh, Midnight in Paris, um, written and directed by Woody Allen. Uh, with a budget of $17 million. It grossed about $154 million. So it's a, one of those successful films for, for Woody Allen. Uh, music composed by Stéphane Wemble, um, who is a French jazz guitarist, starring Owen Wilson as Gil, Rachel McAdams as Inez, Alison Pill as Zelda Fitzgerald, Tom Hiddleston as Scott Fitzgerald, Corey Stoll as Ernest Hemingway, Kathy Bates as Gertrude Stein, Marianne Cotard as Adrian, and Adrian Brody as Salvatore Dali. And there are many others that make appearances in this film, but um, these are these are some of the, the highlights. So uh, I thought we'd start, Bill, by just talking about this film. This is kind of an odd one for, for Woody Allen in the sense that He's getting more and more European as he as he was in in terms of shooting locations. Um, this is one of many films that he shot in in France and in Paris in particular. His latest film is being shot right now in 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 France in French. So he's sort of made that uh, that um, I guess headway into that. But this is not a a movie about the Jewish culture in New York or anything like that. It's really about um, a kind of nostalgic film um, with some kind of upbeat music. Uh, he goes more towards the jazz classical guitar, um, which is it's sort of in keeping with what he's doing. Um, but it has a lot of uh, almost science fiction elements to it. It's, it's a time travel piece in a way. Um, it's a piece as as Woody always does on writers and artists and the meaning of writers and artists is about a, a writer uh, played by Owen Wilson Gill, who's uh, a screenwriter in Hollywood, calls himself a hack. Um, he's in Paris with his fiance, Rachel McAdams as Inez and her parents, uh, and they're getting ready to marry. But right off the bat, we know that something has gone awry. These two are not uh, necessarily compatible. Um, Gill wants to write a novel wants to live in the Paris of the 1920s and um, he sort of gets lost in that nostalgic feel. So I thought we'd start general and then maybe go to the specific. And and I, I'll just begin by um, this conversation by asking you, what are your thoughts on this film? Yeah, this is a great, uh, a great addition to the, the Woody Allen canon. You know, it's, um, it's funny you mentioned uh, that this is, you know, a moment in his string of European films. Um, and I guess in a way, ironically, Woody Allen is sort of an expatriate yeah. in it for various reasons. But um, yeah, he had to uh, go to Europe for financing, essentially. And, um, you know, he found more creativity and in, in just, um, you know, kind of more in line with his, you know, the entirety of his career where he's able to make the films that he wants with no little or no oversight, really. Right. But um, I do like it. It's, I think it's a it's a fantastic, um, you know, I'd say latter day uh, Woody Allen film. And, and that's one of the, the concerns that many critics and viewers have about Woody Allen's output, um, you know, post, let's say, uh, 
you know, nineties, mid nineties is the, you know, the quality that has been, you know, perhaps a little bit inconsistent. Yeah. But I think, um, I think this one here is, is just in line, uh, with, you know, most of the, uh, the great films that he's done. Um, you know, maybe it second tier, I'd call it a second yeah. tier, would you? But it's him returning to, um, to form when it comes to, uh, let's say the magical realism that he kind of visits here and there throughout his career. And, um, and I, you know, I just think it's very interesting that he made a little bit of a shift when it comes to the, uh, the protagonist here. So in most cases, you know, he has sort of a, a Woody Allen, either him or a surrogate, you know, someone kind of taking the place of the so-called Woody Allen character. But in this case, I find Gil to be quite different. And um, I've heard in interviews that Woody Allen did at first have a draft where the central character was you know, again, a Woody Allen type, um, New York, uh, New Yorker intellectual, um, just younger, just a character that Woody himself could not play at this point. Uh, but I forget how it turned out or how, how it went, but I guess, um, Owen Wilson's name was, was suggested in the casting process. And so he rewrote it a bit, uh, tweaked the character and he's now a, um, you know, Gill's a very interesting take on uh, on the Woody Allen protagonist. You know, yeah. I, I feel he's a bit more naive and frazzled, bewildered yeah. a bit, you know, um, a bit more innocent in a way. Yeah. But still has that deep restlessness that most of Woody Allen's characters have, it's particularly the uh, the protagonist. So I guess to answer your question, I, I, I really like this because yeah. it's, it's just a... Um, uh, there's so much to it. Um, there's, you know, all the Woody Allen qualities you like, but and, and it's a film that could take you anywhere. It could take you to philosophy. It could right. take you to literature. Uh, you can talk about this on a philosophical level. And um, it's just, I think, a very interesting plot. And it, it might speak to why it was so successful. And I could be wrong, but I believe I read somewhere that this is Woody Allen's highest grossing film. I think you think you're right. If not the highest grossing, one of the the top. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I I want to stick with Gil for a second since you since you bring him up. I, I think so so perceptively, there is that sense when when Woody Allen is is writing a film and he's not playing the character, but you can tell those lines are Woody Allen lines that that you could see at least in my head. I can hear Woody speaking them, even though it's a different actor. Um, with Owen Wilson, I get much more of a sense of this is an Owen Wilson character. You know, he's got that kind of still the existential crisis that the protagonist is going through. But it really is. And maybe this is a testament to to the acting chops of Owen Wilson. But there are resemblances of Woody and I can hear a kind of echo of Woody, but not necessarily as much as I heard from other films that he does where he's not starring in. Did you get a sense of that or? Oh, absolutely. No, no, I think you're right on the nose there. You know, it, I think the. um the Owen Wilson take is, is, you know, he's a comedic actor as well, right. as we know, but his comic timing is, uh, it's, you know, it's different. It's, it's just yeah. a different uh, style of comedy, which, you know, I think at first, if you were to tell me, you know, Owen Wilson starring in a Woody Allen movie, I, I would, um, before seeing this, I might've said that that's, <laughs> that's not great casting. Right. But right. Um, I just think he brought a freshness to the Woody Allen protagonist that, um, that might not have been there. And um, yeah, I, I get that too. Like you can tell which lines would have sounded really 
natural and let's yeah. say a younger Woody Allen protagonist. But then, um, you know, I, I don't think I don't think Gil is as savvy or yeah. um, wisecrack. So there's there's not as many, you know, classic Woody Allen one liners in this film. But um, right. But I think it's I think it was a great decision. You know, it's it's a. Uh, it's it's just it's so much of a fish out of a, out of water kind of story with the, an Owen Wilson yep. kind of protagonist, um, where you know he's sort of uh, you know he loves Paris, but he's yep. definitely not of Paris. <laughs> right, right. Uh, where I think perhaps a uh, a more sophisticated, culturally well-rounded character might have been uh, more at home. Um, in the story. I, think you're, I, I think that's you're, you're, I think you're dead on. There is a lack of sophistication. And again, I don't think I don't say that as a criticism uh, of Owen Wilson or even the protagonist, but I think it's it's intentional that this mm -hmm. sort of, you know, he is really as much as he wants to be this novelist. Um, he is he's a, a Hollywood writer, which writers see as kind of a second tier or even a third tier to being a novelist or a poet, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. you know. But yet all of these great novelists, you know, I'm thinking William Faulkner go to Hollywood and even F. Scott Fitzgerald and start writing for Hollywood. So there is this sense of tying in with all of that. Yep. And failed, Gil, failed sorry. by the way. There's what? Uh, and they failed, by the way, right? And they as, failed, as right. Yeah, right. Uh, they weren't nearly as successful in that. And right. with Gill, there is this sort of profound, and it's said many times throughout the film, there's this kind of profound sadness to him. So even though he's a jokey kind of character, very likable, there is this sort of, he doesn't fit anywhere. He doesn't fit in his own time. He can't fit in Paris because as you said yourself, he's not of Paris uh, in that sense though. Yeah, fish out of water is, is the type of character that he is. And we're kind of pulling for him a little bit, but I don't know if we're pulling for him because it, it sort of makes us think about those things we want in our own life with that pull of nostalgia. Um, which is a kind of homesickness in a, in a way, or, or, you know, it's just getting wrapped up in the film. Exactly. Exactly. And he's a California type, you know, so right. Woody Allen does, right. uh, he does mention that in an interview where, you know, it became like a, uh, yeah. I mean, Owen Wilson's character is a Hollywood guy, you know, he, yeah. he knows, um, you know, whereas Woody Allen characters are normally, you know, as we see in Annie Hall, just, you know, not at home in California at all. And, right. and just uh, uncomfortable with the, um, you know the hollywood um right. game game but yeah I th I, you pointing out owen wilson's um sort of um sympathetic kind of uh persona in this movie i think really serves the story very very well whereas um you know usually woody allen's characters aren't as uh you know perhaps likable in a way you know i mean they're, they're more um you know, funny, you know, you, you yeah. appreciate the wit of a Woody Allen protagonist, but with, uh, with this take, yeah, there's a, um, pathos there, you know, and, uh, you just, you really want him to succeed and his, his eyes are sad. And I think it is pointed out somewhere in the film. Is it Dolly's character who points out his sad eyes? Um, I think so. I, yeah. I, I forget, I forget, but, uh, Adri I think Adriana does it a few times too. Yeah. And he's lost, you know, he's, yeah. he's very clearly and obviously, uh, lost, which, uh, you know, I think it's at it's at the heart of um, a lot of Woody's stories, but I think this movie really succinctly presents the, um, you know, the idea that we are we're kind of all lost in a way. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, and Gil, part of his restlessness is that he does not feel um, 
really like he belongs anywhere. Anywhere, right. You know, he's sort of uh, he's in transition in many different aspects of his life. You know, he's involved with um, well, deeply involved with he's about to get married to uh, a yeah. woman he does not love. Um, and he is kind of between careers in a way or he wants to make the transition to literature because, you know, he, he feels he's just not, you know, uh, fulfilling his potential as a writer or, or fulfilling his needs. And um, not to mention, he is kind of in the middle of two places in terms of home. He doesn't feel yeah. at home in the United States anymore, or he feels more at home in Paris and, and on a um, perhaps a more magical realism level. He feels not at home in his own time, which is, it gets to the kind of like what the basic theme of this piece at least one of the themes is the uh, the golden age fallacy you know the right. idea that um other generations were superior other gener other time periods were uh were were wonderful and you know and, and now it's it's all crumbling to pieces <laughs> right that's right. all that's it's it's that sort of romanticized version of the past that we tend to subscribe to the, the the idea of nostalgia. But the character of Paul, I think, brings it out the best. By the way, Paul is, and I forgot, I don't know the the characters, the, the actor's name who plays him, but he to me is the most Woody Allen type character in this film. Uh, you know, he's that didactic sort of pretentious professor who wants to tell everybody how smart he is. But there's that one scene when they're walking through the park, the four of them, and uh, uh, Gil says, "You know, I want to be." Uh, I want a garret with a with a skylight in Paris, and and Paul says, "Yeah, uh, all with the, with the tuberculosis as well, you know." And there were no <laughs> antibiotics or anything like that, and and all of that, you know, we don't think about that. The the power of deodorant or you know uh, restrooms that work the way we think they should. Right. So it's like it's it's the suggestion that we don't want reality. Right. We don't want reality of now. We don't. We don't. We don't want reality of the past. We want um, the idea of the past. Uh, you know, I love uh, Woody Allen's line uh, where he said, um, "I think it's in his uh, one of his books." He says, "Although the world is miserable, it's still the only decent place you can get a decent steak." Right. <laughs> uh, you know, although you know, basically, reality is the only place where you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you know, we all long for you know, let's say I don't know. I'm teaching great expectations right now. And, you know, the, the Victorian age on the one hand seems so uh, charming, cobblestone streets, top hats, horse-drawn carriages. Right. But, uh, you know, they had <laughs> deep-rooted um, problems at every level, just like uh, just like we do. And um, so this, this film, I don't think, really has answers. Right. Other than pointing out that reality. But... Um, I'm, I'm at the end, you know, it's I think one of the I, I be also so scattered here, but it brings me to, um, you know, the, the end of this film, which for me is a it's a very unique Woody Allen ending where it it resolves optimistically, yeah. you know. Um, so I don't know. Overall, thematically, would you say that um, this is a positive statement, a negative statement, or just perhaps Woody just being real? I, for me, and I just watched it again, and and it's probably this is the the Woody Allen, maybe with the exception of Hannah and her sisters, that I've seen the most. Um, anytime it's on TV, I watch it. But I, I get two things from this film. Number one, it's a love letter to Paris, 
Oh, yeah. And I think that that's, you know, for me, Paris, especially this last time watching it, Paris becomes the main protagonist. Um, but it's also a love letter to the, the kind of American expatriate creative artist. And I know we don't like to use that word artist, but I'm talking about, you know, art and literature and music and all of and dancing. You think of Josephine Baker, the only American to be, you know, to be uh, held up to that standard um, in, in in France and mm -hmm. all of that where and it said it's someone he says this in the film. These people had to leave their own country in order to sort of find themselves. Yeah. So there is this whole sense that Woody is playing with this. And I think you can see that all through his his career. He is this kind of intellectual voice, which, by the way, might make his films less popular with the general public because you, you sort of have to be a certain kind of person to get his humor, to get the, the references that he's making. Um, oh, no doubt. No doubt. Know, no doubt. Think of his film Deconstructing Harry, right? The whole process of deconstruction is going to, you know, it's going to go over the heads of, of most Americans, I would suspect. Oh, but yeah. I, for me, this has always been a film about Paris and about this sense of of nostalgia, nostalgia and, and romanticizing the past. Now, OK, so you, I have not been to Paris. You have. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious. OK, so I think Woody Allen, if you see a Woody Allen film from the 70s, um that you know features new york yeah um it's a very different new york than let's say martin scorsese presents right. in let's say mean streets would you say woody allen presents you call it a love letter does he present yeah. a a paris that is that exists or or is he very much sort of romanticizing it in the way he romanticizes new york I think it's both, to be honest with you. I was just in Paris last year and and I, I did a lot of the things that Gil did. Um, you know, I went to what I wanted to do was go and find out where writers were, where, uh, you know, and so I went to all of these different places. That Paris does exist that Woody is showing us, but it's not the whole Paris. There's there's a whole different side to Paris that we don't get with this, specifically the um, the immigrant side of Paris. Right. Woody doesn't show that in this film at all. He shows a very much a, a kind of a, a touristy kind of Paris that we're all familiar with, with the postcards. But there is that real Paris where there's so many that influx of immigration, um, specifically from North Africa uh, and some of the other uh, uh, African uh, countries that are really turning the idea of France and what it means to be French around. Um, we visited one campus in, in Paris um, um, in the north of Paris that was very sort of a majority of the people there were North African. And it looks very different from how you would think Paris is that Woody is showing us or the Paris of, of the Champs-Élysées and, and, and all of that, uh, the Latin quarter. Um, so those Paris, those two ideas of Paris, I think, exist simultaneously. Um, but there is undoubtedly, and I'm, I'm happy you, you, you asked that because I think it's such an important point. This is definitely a romanticized version of, of Paris, even though that Paris does exist in a way. You do see people in those outdoor cafes sitting and drinking and, and smoking as the French are, are great at doing and, and talking about this and that. And Paris is wonderful for putting up plaques on buildings and streets that are named after artists and writers and, and actors and dancers and all of that. That's something that we don't necessarily get in the United States, I think. Um, only if that, only if you pay for it and it's only sponsored. Only if you pay for it, right. <laughs> right. Sponsored by some company, yeah. Exactly yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's an impression of Paris. That's what I suspected, that yeah. it was uh, an impression of Paris yeah. uh, from a certain um, certain angle. and. 
that kind of carries over to um, the authors and, and artists and musicians that we see in the um, in the in the 1920s segments, where they are somewhat impressions of these particular individuals. You know, yeah. um, the Ernest Hemingway, let's say, for example, the character of Ernest Hemingway is kind of like the idea or the impression. Yep that we often have of Ernest Hemingway and which I'm sure reality is yeah quite different and uh you know it's sort of like I don't know almost caricatures of um yeah of these uh of these artists from the past and exactly how we want to know them right. exactly how we want to remember them because that's what we've always been taught or that's it's what's in our minds in a, in a similar way we we sometimes just don't want to see reality right we don't right. want to we don't want to see certain aspects of Par of paris or certain aspects of the 20s or the victorian right. age we, we want to remember and it goes for our own lives too you know we want to remember things how we want to remember them and, and right. our memory is a our memory is a very um strange thing it's, it's just you know quote um i'm probably paraphrasing but you know all about eve where you have a character saying it's kind of funny what you remember and what you forget right yeah <laughs> um so, uh, and and Gil is a character I think who um, is is as I liked how you you mentioned uh, Hero's Journey because um, did you mention Hero? Is there, did I, I just you, no, you okay you might have I, been yeah I didn't but but okay, I like well, you're it, going with this so it, it, it popped into my head that um, you know Gil is on a on a on a on a, a quest you know yeah. for for something and and he may not even know what it is. Um, but I'll tell you, getting back to the end, you know, it's really satisfying to see that he does, uh, ultimately at least, you know, on the onset, uh, gets what he wants. So. Which is the perfect Hollywood ending, right? He gets the girl in the end. Um, yeah. we are, we're sort of led to believe that, it, you know, they're, they're walking off in what he wanted. I mean, what he wanted all along from the very first moment he comes on screen is to walk in Paris in the rain. He wants to yeah. do it. He thinks with Inez, but he really doesn't, you know, has no interest in Inez. I don't think she certainly doesn't have interest in him. Um, and then it's just like he finds this woman accidentally by going to her thrift shop and, and talking about Cole Porter. And at the end, she miraculously shows up, you know, yeah. and, and it's perfect. I wonder if Woody at a different point in his career, I don't know if it's a point in his career because he, he does make cynical statements still. But I'm just wondering if if he wrote this at a you know at a different point if he was in a different mood uh if he would have perhaps gave a cynical message because i could easily see him um believing in a sentiment that um would suggest settling right and living the rest of his life in you know quiet desperation and yeah. um marrying someone he does not love which happens all the time yep not in our cases, obviously. No, since we're still happily married after all these. Yes, years, yes, exactly. Not to each uh, other, I hasten to add, but to yeah. <laughs> I should have pointed that out. Yeah, but um, you know, so uh, it's very interesting that he decided to. Uh, you know, part of me thinks that he might might have struggled with that. That yeah. um, he could have resolved this perhaps in a, a more realistic way. But is I, this I think then a Woody Allen fantasy film? I mean, is it the sense that he's, you know, it's not Hannah and her sisters where we see this doomed love, right? Uh, between these two characters, the, the brother-in-law and the sister-in-law, but it's something else entirely. Yeah. Um, okay. So another magical realism film that is certainly a highlight of his career 
is um purple rose of cairo yeah um and uh you know that resolves with uh you know mia farrow's mia, mia farrow's character just sort of resigning herself to her let's say drab miserable um existence yeah. and the only escape she really has is is cinema yeah and uh, she's left by by her you know uh so-called dream dream man and um she's left alone uh and that's you know uh, most of woody allen's films i would say are very existential sobering messages and yeah um i, I do think there's that aspect to this movie but you know it just resolves so in a, such a satisfactory way yeah that you walk away from it you know feeling good i think yeah, I think so, too. And it, it, it stays true to that idea of the romance, which goes back to what the Hemingway character. Right. If you write something true, it's and, and those sentences that are true and good and all of that. And I think it, I, I think Woody's being very clever here. Right. I'm not saying I don't think he buys it. I don't think you think he buys that kind of life either. But it's sort of it keeps in time with with what the picture is trying to say. Sure. It, it's really for me kind of in the best sense cinema as escapism right we're allowed for an hour it's not 95 minutes is that is the length of the film for 95 minutes we can escape into somebody else's life and then we come out of it and we have a discussion like this one about things that you know, <laughs> may or may not matter but that we yeah. find interesting do you think um what's woody allen saying about nostalgia in in general do you, do you um i've always thought of woody allen as a very nostalgic yeah individual he um you know if you look at his music and his you know a lot of the 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 tastes and tastes and preferences and lifestyles of a lot of the characters that he uh he creates they're you know they're almost throwbacks right people people who are uh you know who are in tune with the past and um i don't i've met people who who say that they detest nostalgia or they they can't stand the inclination to look back and appreciate earlier time periods. But um, I, I just think this particular film, even though it is making the statement that, you know, the past isn't as great right. as you want to think it is, uh, you know, nostalgia is a, a, a beautiful thing and it kind of, it adds to our present day lives in, in many, many ways. Um, that's what I get out of it. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and isn't this exactly what, you know, the, the film is supposed to be about? There is a, it's not supposed to be realistic. Sorry to all the social realism fans out there, but I think it's supposed to be something at least in one part, because I think you can, you can be a social realist in one sense and then enjoy film just as a, a escapist on the other. But this, this goes back to something you said earlier about characters, right? That these are, these are caricatures of the characters as we'd like to believe they are. And Gil says this exact same thing to Inez when he comes back after that first night and he's telling her about having met Zelda Fitzgerald. And he says, Zelda is exactly like we've been brought up to believe she was. She, <laughs> you know, she's very smart, but she's all over the place. And, and I think Alison Pill played her perfectly. Oh on, yeah, on definitely. That. Definitely. Yeah. These are characters that, that, this is how we think of them. Oh um, yeah. And we've yeah. done the same thing with filmmakers and, and, and with Woody and, and, and all of that. Oh and yeah. Think of uh, these filmmakers as these are tours and these, these intellectuals in a different sense. And there are different kinds of intellectuals. Oh and, yeah. And yep. you know, Woody I, um, would have captured that. I, um, I even think that 
I mean, Woody Allen has a, a, an interesting knack of populating a lot of his, many of his films with these caricature. You know, obviously we have the caricatures in this film from the from the past, but in a sense, uh, I would say some of the um, the current day characters are types as well. You know, and that goes for a lot of his films where it's almost like Dickensian in a way where you have the you know a very well rounded, complex, central character or two. Um, at the heart of the story, but then you have popping in and out these characters who are just, you know, sometimes in some cases absurd, in some cases just downright unrealistic um, or based on a particular idea or stereotype, um, which is a great thing. Dickens does right. it to great effect. Uh, and I think Woody Allen does it as well. Um, you know, for example, um, Gil's fiance. How well-rounded is she? Is she as a character? Not much, right? She's just basically the, um, uh, you know, the. How should we put this? She's not likable for me. Not likable at all. You know, she's just uh, very demanding, and you know, she seems to exist only to make Gil's life or present-day existence hell. It, and obviously, right. her par- her parents are um, joined at the hip. With and her her parents and... are actually caricatures of that American couple that, you know, he said, uh, you know, I, I, in one scene, they're they're drinking wine and he goes, I would never pass up on Napa Valley. But since I'm here or something to that, effect, <laughs> you know, he is oh, so yeah. American in the worst sense that oh, he doesn't yeah. like the food. He doesn't like anything about it. He's the ugly American, right? He's so. <laughs> the ugly American. But let's go back to this relationship between Gil and Inez, because this is really it's interesting to me because I think that that Owen Wilson and Rachel McAdams have absolutely no chemistry in this film. No. Uh, I think that that's done on purpose by the two oh, actors. No doubt. no doubt. If you go back earlier and watch, you know, um, uh, Wedding Crashers, where they're playing love interest, they have a lot of chemistry in that film. And for these okay. two to assume, you know, another love interest, but to do it completely opposite, I think is fantastic on, on the part of the actors. Oh yeah, you you feel just incompatibility with them every second, and the only time Gil feels any interest towards her is when it's in the form of lust, right? You know, right. Um, but I love the the moment where um, he's talking to um, actually, forget it, he's talking to the uh, what's her name, the Picasso's interest, love interest there, Adriana. The, uh, yeah, Adriana. He's talking to her. And, uh, you know, he mentions Ines and his, his fiance and uh, they're talking about what he has in common with her. Yeah. And she, he can't think of anything. He's <laughs> like, well, we, we, we both like Indian food. <laughs> right. The non bread. But, but yeah, right. That's it. Right. Yeah. That's the only thing he can think of, you know, and it's it's a very tragic thing. If you think about it, I mean, it's made light in this movie. But, you know, how many people find themselves in relationships just just like that you're you know yeah. this you you commit at a certain level when you're not necessarily thinking straight or you know you just you settle you know and you go you just go through the motions and eventually you're engaged and, and married and um it's a it's a very tragic thing and you want gill uh, and i think these scenes that you mentioned just reinforce the idea you want gill just to get out of there and yeah. i think the the, the writing which, by the way, won an Oscar for the for that script, right? Uh, it was nominated. I don't know if it won, but it was certainly nominated for best. Okay, film. okay. Um, you know, the the writing really um, makes Gil seem like he's really deeply in it. You know, yeah. it, to to the point where 
getting out of that relationship is is not going to be an easy easy thing to do because they're you know they're engaged they're shopping around for you know whatever wedding wedding gifts um you know the the parents are are involved and deeply wealthy you know they're wealthy as well it's it's just it's one of those things where it's like you know he's he's seemingly just going to go you know go into this thing and and live the rest of his life unhappy but yeah um he he finally gets the courage to uh to follow his heart which is not what many people do right but he can only do that after the fact that he has these series of fantasies where he's encountering these people uh in a time that's not his own right and, you know right meeting up with hemingway and and of course and and gertrude stein who i think is fantastically played by by kathy bates uh, oh yeah absolutely um, what's interesting too is she coined the phrase lost generation correct yeah right um you're all a lost generation speaking to hemingway yeah and uh if you think about it that's that still goes on you know that's every every generation has um a younger generation that is <laughs> supposedly right. a mess and lost and don't right. know what they want. And that can go all the way back to ancient times. I'm sure. Right. Um, you know, you have writings of, uh, let's say Roman elders yeah. going after the, uh, the youth for their music yeah. and slovenly habits. And it's probably, uh, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, right. Talking about generations passing away and, right. and another coming into, you know, coming into their own and, so um, it's just a never-ending cycle, and I think that's that's another thing that this, that um, Woody Allen is tapping into. And we do that in our own lives. Uh, just before we started taping this, you and I were talking about teaching, and and you know, I'm always talking with with fellow teachers. I think I've come to teaching forty years too late. You know, so I, <laughs> I I even nostalgize and and romanticize this sense of teaching when it was in the '60s and early '70s. <laughs> You know, when you can get up on the lectern and with yeah, your pipe and, and smoke in classrooms and, 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 you know, pontificate <laughs> yeah. and that doesn't exist anymore. Now we have right. to have rubrics and, and, you know, yes, 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 yes. Student learning outcomes. Not that that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that, but it's, it's not that sort of romantic sense of, of the teacher as professional. Um, right. With the students just hanging on every word with their, with their, uh, with their pencils out, writing down everything that you're saying. <laughs> right. But isn't this the world that Woody is invoking in a sense, right? This is what, what Gil is doing. He's sort of sitting at the feet of these people where he's not at a writing workshop where they're sharing out and everybody's sort of, you know, talking around the table and you're at the same level. He's sort of finding mentors. Yeah. Um, so I think there, that there is that sense that, that Woody is, is talking about this lost world that, if it didn't, if it doesn't exist any longer, it may not have existed. I don't know. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Hemingway called Paris a movable feast. What do you think he meant by that? That's a great question. It's uh, by the way, it's it's my favorite Hemingway text. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and he's writing it, you know, when he's undergoing shock therapy at the Mayo Clinic, uh, Mayo Clinic, and so all of this, I think, it it moves with us, right? That that we tend to think of our lives as progressive and linear moving from point a to point b when cesare pavese says life is a series of moments that we remember moments we don't remember necessarily anything else yeah. so i think that for me it's always been the movable feast of paris has been the sense that it goes with you right if you've been to paris you don't forget that you were in paris and I've traveled a lot. I haven't seen every place or as many places I would have liked, but there really is, there is something about Paris. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It's, it's not my favorite city in the world, but it is certainly something 
different from all of the other cities I've visited. Yeah, so it's a it's a place that seems to just embrace life at as yeah. at its fullest. I mean, that's the, again, that's the impression I'm, I right. get from from a distance that it's uh it's kind of like the epitome of um the arts, right. at least in the minds of many. Um, it, it, Woody Allen once commented that he believes that Paris is the ultimate artistic statement by humanity. Yeah, that Paris, on the whole, is. A, a work of art yeah you know with many components and uh, he believes that you know on every level music food visual art writing it's just it's all there and, and human uh, rights right how many writers yeah. think think of uh, james baldwin who who left the united states because he didn't feel free and and goes to paris yeah uh, josephine uh, baker josephine baker as well right she was worshipped over there yeah correct um yeah, and uh yeah. So yeah, they, they they've always and I think doesn't um, Gil make that uh, observation that yeah. <laughs> the regions have always been a little bit more evolved yeah. um, talk, in talking about uh, ideas of fidelity yeah. and uh, I think it was the was it the museum tour guide who said that um, she was pointing out the the tendency of of Picasso loving more women more than one woman at the same time yeah. and that that's that it's possible <laughs> yeah. yeah and he asked and it, by the way played by carla bruni who was sarkozy's you know uh significant other at the time so there is that <laughs> sense of of all of that going on you know yeah yeah uh, exactly. american politicians would be you know, crucified for for that kind of behavior <laughs> once upon a time i don't know if they still will but I, yeah. I think those those let's talk about the cinematography for a second, because I find it really, really captivating. It's nothing special in the sense of I don't think Woody has done anything groundbreaking in any of his films. He tells a really good story from a kind of of a certain level. Um, it's not panoptic in the sense of or, or panoramic, uh, except that first couple of minutes when the film opens uh, and he's playing the, the the sort of jazz music with shots of Paris from different points of view, it's almost like we're seeing postcards, right? Oh, and, yeah. are, and postcards are a, a kind of nostalgia of the place that we're in, the idealized versions of that. Sure. Um, I thought it was a really, really effective way. Uh, and I think it, it sort of solidifies what we've been trying to talk about as Paris as this sort of character, a certain type of character for for woody at this point in the other um cinematic masterpiece i think in terms of cinematography is um manhattan and yeah. that's how he opens up that film right. with a montage of shots of uh of the city and um it, it's just beautifully done and i think um one thing that i noticed with this is the, sh the shots from the past um you can notice that the you know the coloring has changed you see yeah. far more um let's say oranges reds yes. green it's warmer yeah Far warmer. Um, and then when we're in the current day um, story, we see just, you know, very typical uh, coloring, uh, very, yeah. very realistic, you know, just basically express, expressing that the past is in our minds can yeah. be far more beautiful. And yeah. if you look at it in a certain way. It's I, I think that's a great point. And I, I noticed that this last time that those scenes in the past are all very sort of soft. Right. It's like softly lit uh, where you don't get that kind of it's almost like the, the contemporary scenes are that that sort of daylight um, uh, light bulb. Right. It's almost yep. antiseptic in, in a way. I don't know if that's exactly. the right word, but yeah, um, yeah. No, it's, I think I, I think yeah. it's right. On, that's right on. Um, 
And uh, what do you think about the way? Um, okay, so Woody Allen works in obviously some uh, literary artistic heroes. Um, did you find it interesting who he included and who he didn't? I mean, I think there's some obvious figures from obviously the uh, from this era. You know, I think you have to have Hemingway and, and right. uh, the, the Fitzgeralds in there. Although I wonder, you kind of wonder how often these people were in the same room together. <laughs> if that if that's just something that exists in our heads or on Barnes and Noble wallpaper where you see all yeah, these figures all on the, but they, you know, in this particular time period, they did exist and, and they were, they were talking with one another. And mm -hmm. a lot of them were going to Gertrude Stein's home with, with Alice B. Toklas and they would congregate there. Certainly Joyce, that's how Hemingway came into encounter Joyce and Fitzgerald Hemingway might not have gotten a book contract with, you know, might not have known Max Perkins without Fitzgerald. And, and all of these people were sort of congregating. It was almost like a perfect storm at that point. When I was in Paris last year, I took a, a sort of walk to um, where Gertrude Stein lived. Um, and of oh. course it's a private apartment now, but there is this plaque on the wall um, you know, on, on the building, you know, memorizing, uh, memorializing, sorry, um, that that this was the salon of Gertrude Stein. Uh, I just love how um, everyone deferred to her in this film. Yeah. You know, she was you know, the epitome of, I guess, of, of taste and artistic vision. Yeah. Um, how accurate do you think that is? I, I think it's fairly accurate from from everything that I've read. Um, certainly, you know, I think Gertrude Stein and, and I probably get a lot of flack for this, but she was a much better coach than she was a writer. Uh, you know, I don't think her writing was that great. She's done some really interesting things, but I think her perception was more of a reader and and the ability to put all of these people together from Picasso to to Hemingway to to Joyce and, you know, of course, Sylvia Beach and, and the Shakespeare and Company, um, which we do get a shot of, but it's the older Shakespeare and Company, the one that was opened much later, um, not the original Shakespeare and Company. So I think all of that, he's he's by he, I mean, Woody Allen is kind of bringing it all back, but in a romanticized version. Certainly they must have fought and Hemingway was not an easy person to, to get along with, very jealous of other writers. He makes a mention of this, the character does in, in, in the film. Um, you know, Joyce was always borrowing money um, from Sylvia Beach and she's the one who financed Ulysses to get published. So these people are very poor, um, but very happy at that particular time. And Hemingway touches on this in, in Movable Feast much later that 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 this was the time when they were all very happy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're, it's art for art's sake, right? And, yeah, uh, exactly. Which, um, you know, it's it seems to be something that Paris always has um, has embraced. You know, right. and, um, and which, it's isn't it Picasso who said art is the lie that helps us believe the truth? You know mm -hmm. that it's that it's that sense of of how do we come to the truth, especially today? You know, we're talking about this in 2022, and and truth is sort of all over the place, but art sort of pierces that and, and helps us to come realize what, how, how do we sort of get to know who we really are? And we're, we're not any one particular thing. And I think the film does this really well, makes this particular statement. We're uh, this, a collection of different personalities at different times. Right. Right. Yep. Why do you think this film has resonated so much with, uh, with the public? You know, I mean, Woody Allen puts out a film every year I know. and, very rarely do they you know sort of resonate with the with the public like this one did um it might have something to do with the name you know there's, there's yeah. a lot <laughs> there's a lot in the film title or a book right. title or anything that's yeah uh, it's, it's 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 
you know, definitely uh, is an enticing. Right. It title. sounds so romantic, doesn't it? Midnight in Paris. And, and you do get the sense of midnight is this kind of magical hour and Paris is this magical city. And even in the rain, Paris is sort of brilliant and beautiful, the city of lights. But I think this is really one of Woody's more accessible films. That sure. it's not, you know, it's 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 not talking about a certain subgenre of New Yorkers, right? He's not even speaking about New Yorkers. He's talking about uh, a kind of East Side New Yorker uh, in many of his films. But this is this is more about the human condition. And I'm not saying that his other films aren't, but I think that this taps into an accessibility more. I think sure. there's a couple of his films that do that. I just saw uh, Rainy Day in New York a couple of months ago, and I thought that was a fantastic film too. Uh, yeah one of his later day ones I, I do like that movie as well yeah yeah there's a i mean certainly the, it has a great great hook so you know yeah. if if that was presented in let's say trailers uh you know the idea of um you know going back in time and just seeing another right. era is just a very interesting concept and uh i love how it's presented not in this strange sci-fi way but it's right. just it just happens you know and and it's accepted just this idea of getting into an old car which i get by the way i, I read it's a 1928 <laughs> yeah is that, that right okay yeah w which wouldn't that weren't many of them gone by then yeah 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 <laughs> but uh that's nitpicking right so um yeah yeah we just sci-fi like uh what's that film he did is it bananas where he's uh that's and I, i'm not crazy about that film uh, yeah the, so one of the, the some of the earlier ones have yeah. that you know sleeper you know yep, um, sleeper yeah right you know but, you know, it's like with, um, again, the uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, you know, just there's really no questioning the fact that people come off the screen. I mean, there's questioning of it uh, within certain characters, but there's an acceptance of, you know, OK, this is this is happening. This is this is our reality yeah. in this film and there's no explanation at all. Just right. Deep characters are coming off the screen. And <laughs> right. Um, and in this case, you know, it's. It's just, I think, a very interesting um, stylistic choice. And I, I think it, it really works because overall this film has almost like a fable kind of. Yeah, I think you're right. Fable-esque kind of feel to it. Uh, you know, even contrived on some level, but we, you know, we for, again, we forgive it because of the the, the, the tone of the film, the style, the, right. the way it's presented. We just sort of roll with the fact that, you know, um, that's how I kind of present Dickens too. You know, Dickens is... Uh, you know, a lot of his stuff is pretty broad. Yep, broad brushstrokes, if you will, and uh, but it still really works. The it works to great effect, and um, that's that's the impression I get with this one. Yeah, these are almost like microcosms that that Woody's presenting us with, and this this might be a good a, a good segue to to sort of wrap up our discussion, but. We, you know, this was made in 2011, as we said at the beginning, which is in, in today's term, a lifetime ago, right? Um, so much has changed with technology. Now you could conceivably make a film on your iPhone, especially the kind of film that, that Woody does. Um, everything is CGI. Everything is sort of either Marvel or DC. Um, are there room? Is there, sorry, are there room? Is there room for quiet films like this still? Uh yeah, I do believe I do believe that's the case, and um, I think they're still getting made. You just have to look for them. Yeah. Uh, you might you may not find them in, uh, you know, in the megaplexes, obviously, but right. you know right. they are making their way onto the platforms, um, which is interesting. This a recent development. I, I'm kind of talking with not much knowledge here, but 
um, apparently Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are starting their own film studio um, where they're prioritizing uh, artistic vision. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Which, which I know mo- a lot of film studios would say that. <laughs> right. Um, but I, I guess what they're finding is they're finding that with a lot of the uh, platforms and streaming services that um, there's this so much content out there. And they're also uh, motivated by the fact that the profit sharing and the, the payment that's go is not going into the hands of the artists or the, even yeah. the, you know, the technicians and all the artists who, you know, whether it's a makeup artist or set design, it takes a lot they, of people to make a film. Yeah, exactly. And of course, like anything else, most of the profits are, you know, it's very top heavy in that. And, and so they're, they're trying to kind of get more of a um, united artists kind of approach. Um, so, you know, you, you do see stuff like that because I think with all the platforms and all the stuff that's coming out, there's, you know, there's often a lack of quality, you know, and right. so you have to have real discernment when you say, you know, I'm going to invest in this series here. Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know, I, th- I think perhaps Woody Allen himself or, or so, you know, filmmakers, even like Scorsese might say um, it's it's getting more difficult now yeah. because you you know you have to have you know the best thing ever in order to get the right. funds and uh, these little films aren't making five billion dollar profits therefore right. they're not getting they're not getting greenlit so maybe folks like Woody Allen or Scorsese or Coppola whoever they're getting funding from here or there even if, if they go overseas to get it what about the um you know the the, the film student who's just getting right. out of college who wants to make a a movie are they getting the uh, the attention that they they deserve and um i'm afraid the answer may be uh no <laughs> yeah but there is this sense now we, we we're seeing especially with actors more and more are now heading towards television especially with the streaming services so yeah. that I, I have hope that i didn't have prior to COVID 19 that we will see more of these films or may we'll see more of a space made for films like like midnight in paris um, where we might not have seen prior to COVID because Netflix and these, you know, almost we see a new streaming, you know, every month, it seems that are, that are coming out with really good content. They sure are. They sure are. And, um, but there's a lot of bad content too. There's a lot of, yes. Right. So you really have to weed through it. Um, and, uh, you know, I just hope, I mean, obviously we've lamented about this before. It's the fact that, you know, a lot of these, these films aren't being presented in, uh, in cinemas uh maybe they are for a short period of time yeah um and so yeah there's that or certain cinemas right they're not going nationwide they're in no the heavy no i mean i have a i have a cinema magic here in hooks it and um you know they they play the standard stuff you know yeah. just the, the stuff that's going to fill fill right. seats but again i think we're uh tilting at windmills here <laughs> i think you're right yeah but there is something to be said you and i talk about this quite often and we haven't come to any conclusion i don't think but you know are europeans turning out better films these days than than americans and it seems to me and i, I could be wrong you're you're more certainly more of a of a woody expert than i am but it seems to me that he's sort of he's always had this kind of european feel to his films even though oh, yeah. most of them take place in the united states but there is that sense that he's not that 
Scorsese kind of can do both. You know, he, he can go either way. But with Woody Allen, I don't get the sense. It's hard for me to think of him as as an American or a European filmmaker. I just I don't see him in in any place. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with influence. You know, he yeah. uh, idolizes Bergman, right. uh, Fellini, and he, in certain cases, even lifts plots yeah. and just re- retells them in his own uh, particular way. And so, uh, yeah, they're small films. They make a pittance of money. Um, basically, what happens with him is he, he just he finds, uh, you know, uh, people who just want to invest in his films, not to make, not necessarily for a you know, a profit venture, but just right. to simply uh, <laughs> say that they financed a Woody Allen film. And, and it seems like those people are coming more. I mean, he's, he's adored and loved. They built statues. Right. For Woody Allen in, uh, in other countries. Right. right. Um, so, you know, we see this on, um, you know, in, in all arts, you know, we just where certain um, comedians, let's say uh, certain musicians just seem to have that, uh, that's certain something that Europeans like more than right. than what we like over here. Um, that's a whole other show. <laughs> that's right. It is. And maybe we will do a, a podcast on that. But anyway, I think that this is probably a good place to stop. Um, yeah. You know, do you have any wrap up thoughts about this particular film, Midnight in Paris? I just like to say it's worth it. It's it's uh, for those who, um, you know, I know several people in my life who have sort of dismissed Woody Allen's yeah. latter day career. Um, and they like the the early stuff, and they sometimes will will <laughs> their their Woody Allen, um, let's say tastes kind of end somewhere in the nineties, both yeah. of Broadway perhaps. Uh, but he's still putting out some good material, and you know, it's part of me wants him to sort of pause pause a little bit more often, and yeah, maybe get a few uh, more drafts of a script going, and maybe. Um, but I think this one is an exception to that. I think um, this could be one of his best of, you know, post 2000, in my opinion. Yeah, you know? I, I think you're right. I, I, I think this is 95 minutes of time well spent um, yep. just on its own, but to also consider it in in his entire oof and, and just to sort of look at it as as what he's doing is is interesting with film. And a quick last minute nod to uh, Sidney Bechet, if you're into uh, alto sax and yeah. and. Uh, uh, clarinet and all from all that uh from that era it's just uh just some great great material Absolutely. uh musically so yeah go see it great well uh on behalf of uh william ivers and myself we want to thank you for for tuning in to this midnight in paris edition of the classroom critics you can download us uh wherever you get your podcasts and if you have any ideas of films that you think we should talk about we don't necessarily review films this is really a conversation among three teachers um, that are just interested in film we don't claim to be experts but we do watch a lot of films we like films and we think that they're important please let us know and do drop us a line to let us know what you think about about our podcast so again on behalf of uh william ivers and myself andrew martino thanks for listening see you next time take care bye